Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman. This week on Unscrewed, I get to talk to one of my friends, so I always like that. But I promise you, you will love it too. I have Anuradha Bhagwati with me talking about her amazing new memoir, Unbecoming, a Memoir of Disobedience. So for those of you who are not familiar, Anuradha is a Marine Corps veteran, and she founded Service Women's Action Network, who is primarily responsible for the fact that anyone gives a shit about sexual violence in the military and also about moving women into having the opportunity to serve in combat roles in the military. She's done some amazing activism, and her memoir is about why she decided to get into the Marine Corps, which is like a whole story, and her experience there, and also sort of her experience extracting herself from the Marine Corps and trying to hold them to account while also healing from all of the really toxic shit she experienced there. Amarada, is that a pretty fair summary of your book? I think it is, okay. yeah. That's the like eight second description. Thank you for coming on my show. Thank you. So as you know, we're going to talk all about your b- memoir and your life. But before we do that, I have to ask you my, our lightning round questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first one is, what's been making you happy this week? Oh, gosh. It's puppies and kittens. Yay. It's real. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Specifically your puppy and kitten. Yes, my puppy and kitten. Yay. <laughs> My kitten got spayed, so it was not a happy week for the kitten. Oh, but good. I mean, it's good your kitten got spayed. Yeah, yeah. For everyone involved. It's just hard to explain that to the kitten. Yes. Yeah, lovely. All right, what's the best sex advice you ever received? I think it's just, it's talk about what you want. Don't be silent. Yes. I mean, a lot of sex advice I find is good for the rest of your life, too, and don't be silent is definitely one of those. What's been making you the maddest and saddest lately about the sexual culture? You know, it's weird. I I was on the phone yesterday with a friend from India, and I feel like for every conversation we have in the United States that has just racked our brains, whether it's, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings or anything related to the last couple of years since 
the president was elected. There's so much more work to do around the world mm-hmm. that it, it makes me so sad uh, when I think about what would it be like to be a, a woman or girl in India. And we were talking specifically about someone being trolled, uh, you know, and the, the threats to her life and her mother's life just for speaking out online, which is something that I know you're intimately familiar with. But it's the, sort of the level and intensity of that. We have agencies which more or less are responsible for protecting us here. Over there, you know, she's sort of making the decision of whether or not she needs to seek asylum, right? So it's, you know, as as shitty as things are here for so many people, I, I still feel lucky. Wow. I mean, that's a, that says a lot. <laughs> yeah. Things are not the best here, for sure. No, no. What is the biggest myth about sex that you once believed but don't believe anymore? That it's always good, that it feels good, that it's always about intimacy. It's not that way. Take some work, too. And even when it's between two people who are respectful and have the best of intentions, it's not always good. Okay, last question. Who is someone who's doing really brave work to unscrew up the sexual culture that you want to give a shout out to? I have in my mind Shahrazad Tillett, who has founded A Long Walk Home with her sister, but Shahrazad, I, you know, I met her a few years ago and she's just so lovely. And I, I think of her really fondly. And I, I know her work has been in the news quite a bit these last few months. Um, but she is creating safe spaces for black girls in the arts, you know, and I, I feel like the arts really get a short shrift when it comes to healing from sexual violence and violations in general. I adore the work she does. Yes, I do too. And I did have the pleasure of meeting her one time and she's also just a lovely human for sure. Yeah. Which is amazing when you get both in the same person. All right. That's the lightning round. You did great. Thanks. So let's talk about your book. This is the first interview you've given about the book, right? It is. Yeah. By the time this airs, by the time people are listening to it, you'll, I'm sure, I'm sure I've given a bunch, but, but we're recording it. This is your first convo so we get you really fresh (laughs) i love that so i want to start i know i gave like the absolute quick and dirtiest summary of your book at the introduction but i'd love you to start by just telling listeners about the book why you wrote it what it's about and what it's about for you i mean one of the questions that i have for you is good god this is really intense and personal material like why were you motivated to do this? I felt like the whole thing was an exorcism, like full on twisting of the head. It's something I just had to get out of my system. I remember I was doing the advocacy work activism in Washington for service women. And I was so angry and sad and burnt out from working with elected officials. And this was during the Obama administration mostly from kind of railing against military establishment and trying to convince folks that the institution had so much farther to go when it came to this work. And I felt like there's only so much you can do in the public sphere to change things, that some of this work involves the close, intimate work of healing, and and that it was quite possible I could help more women and girls by writing my story, even than doing the public advocacy work. And so... It felt like a public service in that way, but something so much more intimate 
And for me, as I was writing it, and I, you know, I didn't have a huge idea of the outline of the story, but I realized this is so much about being a brown girl in this country and recognizing as I was writing my own story, particularly growing up in the Northeast, mostly in Boston and, and New York, that I had very few role models, adults that I could look up to or that I could look to for advice about anything ranging from sexuality to, you know, what does it mean to be touched by a man you don't know? And that it mattered that the people around me didn't look like me. And so race and ethnicity, nationality, all of these things became huge themes for me as I was writing the book. It's really moving and it's really surprising like I have never read a book anything like this I feel closer to you now <laughs> like I also feel like I learned an enormous amount about you that I didn't know including I mean I think the part about why you got into the Marine Corps was super interesting which had to do some with kind of rebellion against your parents expectations but also it felt a little bit like and you didn't talk about it in this language, so tell me if this isn't right. But it felt to me a little bit like a love affair with masculinity. You wanted to prove that you had as much value as the boys by accepting the terms of the most rigid and toxic masculinity and succeeding on those terms. Is that fair? That's very fair. Yeah, I love that. A love affair with masculinity. I feel like I'm still in it, actually, a little bit. It's so deep. And it's weird because I learned some of that not just from my father, but also my mother growing up. Like she was very much adopting a certain way of being, you know, they, they were both academics. And so she thought you had to speak in a certain way in order to get respect in the professional world, she would call it, or dress a certain way. And so I almost feel like they prepared me for the Marine Corps in that way. Even though they were kind of mystified and horrified when you went to the Marine Corps. They were mystified and horrified. Absolutely. And they rationalized it as some sort of practical decision that I was taking, which was hilarious. There's nothing practical at all about it, but they really threw them. And I don't know if they fully appreciated the toxic masculinity aspect of what I was about to jump into. I, I mean, I don't know that anyone can really fully appreciate it unless you're in it. We see the movies and hear the stories, but I mean, it's really out there and sort of uncensored and untamed. I think it's the last bastion of sort of allowing men to do really awful things we shouldn't be allowing them to do. I mean, I wish it were the last bastion <laughs> that's happening elsewhere as well, but yeah. it seems to be in its purest uncut form. Yeah, that could be right. That could be right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they wanted you to be an academic, basically, like them. Yeah, they did. I mean, I wasn't really the doctor engineer type, which is sort of the biggest Indian stereotype in the West, and maybe in India, too. But I wasn't into the sciences. And so, you know, the next best thing would have been a PhD in anything. I, <laughs> Literally anything. anything. Yes. With a husband who also had a PhD in anything. But that was not me. They tried so hard to get me to fall into that, and I refused 100% <laughs> and then some. So I feel like I was fleeing my upbringing, and in particular, my dad's control of me. You know, he's a very big personality. He tends to have an audience wherever he goes. 
he won't understand why you're not listening to him if you choose not to be his audience. It will be very surprising. But you fled that dominant masculine controlling environment to the Marine Corps. Yeah, you know, and this is where Freud and all, you know, all the head shrinks can explain <laughs> better what that's about. But absolutely, I was, you know, replacing one incredibly patriarchal situation with another, arguably far more threatening to me, you know, my, my physical or emotional safety. So I didn't see the connection there when I was in my early 20s, but I definitely see it now. In terms of the love affair with masculinity, the Marine Corps is really, really white and the least diverse of the branches of service. I'm not entirely sure if I knew this going in, but the Marine Corps prides itself on being the best, the smallest, you know, we do the most with the least resources and, you know, rough and scrappy. And in some ways you, you see this in the, like the FDNY, the fire department, you're elite, you know, you don't open doors to too many people, you know, doors have to be forced open. And so my love affair also became very narrow. It was like the leaders I worshipped were very gruff, aggressive white men. And I mean, it was really risky. It was risky for my mental health because there was, you know, a complete erasure of my ethnic identity in that whole process of trying to be like these other guys whom I never would be like. I, I could never fully be like these men. And yet I was convinced I could be, and I certainly wanted to be. And some of that is Marine Corps indoctrination. And the rest is, you know, when I grew up, those were the people who had power. Those were the men who had audiences. And that's what I wanted, I guess, you know, that kind of acceptance. Yeah. I think there's two ways that we talk about women in power. And one is about how do women succeed at the games that have already been defined, yeah. right? Which are tend to be men's games for power, yeah. right? And the other is, you know, what does female or feminine power look like separate and apart from men? Yeah. And I, I find both of those conversations unsatisfying in different ways, you know, because I feel like the obviously the one where we're just trying to be better at playing the terms of the games that men have defined in some part that men have defined specifically to differentiate themselves from us and to have power over us. Mm -hmm. I feel like you're playing on a toxic structure, right? Like you're inherently being set up to fail in some way. And also we're all assuming when we talk about power that way, that these structures are correct, right? And we're sort of elevating masculine ways of thinking and constructing power as the valid ones. On the other hand, sometimes it's quite transformative when we play those games. For example, the current fucking Congress, right? Like, <laughs> is amazing and it's like giving me life on the regular. And that's nothing if not like a lot of women of color who decided to play a game that a bunch of white men set up for power, right? Yeah, no, you raise some amazing points. And I'm just reminded of how dissatisfying many of my conversations with women in the military are because there are not enough of us. You know, I mean, I'm out now, but there are just not enough women in the military for a conversation to be rich and open the way it might be. It's like you can feel the limitations as you're speaking. In the Marine Corps, there's still only only like 7% of the Marine Corps is female. You're being watched everywhere, even when you're alone. It's just this feeling of 
constantly being scrutinized because you just stand out so much and then on top of it you're indian yeah yeah yeah. so you know i'm thinking about that beautiful picture of the women in congress now that isn't the situation certainly in the marine corps but it's closer to that maybe in the army and navy air force where there are more women and yet it's still not because there aren't enough you know you don't get that what you're saying is you don't get that subversive transformative energy until you have critical mass Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, not, it's not safe to either speak your mind or to be different because there aren't enough women. Or like to deliberately stand out. Like all those, you know, congresswomen who shut open white for the State of the Union. If there had been three of them, it would have been very different. Yeah, they'd all be sitting targets, which is exactly what you feel like in the military. If you if you express yourself in a way that doesn't go along with the rest. So yeah, tell us, I mean, obviously I've read the book and I know you, but like for the benefit of the folks who are listening, tell us a little bit about what you experienced in the military in terms of sexual harassment and abuse, gender discrimination, like what you witnessed and what you experienced. Yeah. So the Marine Corps is the only branch of service which still segregates its basic training. It's very arbitrary. The Army doesn't do that. The Army is very similar to the Marine Corps in function, but they mix their basic training. So, you know, you're doing push-ups alongside guys. The Marine Corps, you're in your own separate all-female unit trained by female drill instructors who are, by the way, fierce and terrifying. But What it does is it harms both men and women. And so what I saw when I was going in was women not performing to a standard as high as I knew they could achieve because the standard was set so low for us. And so we weren't training to do pull-ups, which are the Marine Corps standard for upper body strength. Men had to do pull-ups. Women didn't have to do pull-ups, which is absurd. If you're going to train to do something, then train to do it. But we weren't even encouraged to train. What it ends up doing is teaching men that women need to be separated for some reason and the reasons that are usually given by marine corps leaders and by that i mean drill instructors for the first the first marines you encounter are that they're weak they're nasty they'll get you into trouble right mm. they'll they'll basically weaken you in some way and the guys really have no <laughs> no reason to believe otherwise because they're not training with us And so, you know, they sort of see us, you know, on the other end of the drill field doing what we're doing and, you know, we're sort of doing the same to them. When we're ultimately integrated, there are all these stereotypes that have now been inculcated in us about the other sex. And it's completely dysfunctional. You know, the other thing I see is women are held to such a low standard of the issues of self-esteem, confidence. They linger a long time. I struggled with that quite a bit myself, even though... You know, I was feisty and pushed myself, but it's hard to believe in yourself when no one believes in you. It's, it's you know, it, it helps when you have mentors who think you can do something, who set goals that are high for you. And I didn't have any of that. I mean, I think one of the things that I took from your book was a clear understanding of how having double standards, you know, having excluding women from combat and not training together, you know, all of that stuff for the reasons you're articulating, absolutely creates the fertile groundwork for sexual harassment and abuse, right? Because women are seen as weak, women are seen as a problem, you know, something to dominate, that those aren't two different issues, right? Before I read the book, I thought about combat inclusion and sort of equality of women in the military from like an employment and opportunity perspective. 
and sexual harassment and abuse in the military is two separate issues. But I really feel like you make a strong case that they're the same issue. Yeah. And I'm really glad that, that you connected those two things. I mean, if you look at Pentagon statistics, who wants to talk data, but it's out there for us. It's been year after year. The Marine Corps has the highest rates of sexual assault among all the service branches. And again, it's the only service branch that's still segregating its training at such a basic level. And so when men are taught to disrespect women, (laughs) which is what's happening at the basic training level, sexual harassment is going to thrive. And the other issue is there will be sexual predators in any institution, unfortunately, but how we deal with them often makes the difference. And when you're training leaders and whether they're male or female, but the majority of leaders in the Marine Corps are male for the reasons we've talked about, and they don't know how to identify sexual harassment or sexual assault, they're more likely to sweep it under the rug. They're more likely to downplay it, rationalize it, excuse it. Military leaders have no idea how to properly adjudicate sexual assault cases, how to properly treat sexual harassment cases. And it's often a free-for-all with harassers, with predators doing whatever they want to do. I mean, I honestly feel like have no idea is too kind. Yeah, now it is. Like, I feel like in your stories, and I don't know if you want to tell the specifics of some of the stuff that you witnessed or experienced, or you were sort of the supervising person who had to try and help with, right? So you were in a lot of relations to this stuff in the military. It wasn't so much that people were clueless about how to handle it, is that they were just like fucking closed ranks. Absolutely. Look the other way. And I was just dumbfounded. You know, when you sort of think of officers, this kind of officer and a gentleman stereotype of clean, sophisticated men doing the right thing. That's how I perceived some of my senior officers in these cases. I had a case where I was a lieutenant and a colonel and a lieutenant colonel, you know, so several rungs up the chain of command. These were career officers who'd been in 20, 30 years in the infantry. And I looked up to them. They were intelligent. They gave me opportunities. They were articulate, you know, well-read, all of these things. And yet when it came to a handful of women in my company reporting that a staff sergeant had sexually assaulted them in the field, they closed ranks so quickly, it was over before we even knew it. So they just transferred him out of the unit. They just transferred him. It's just like the fucking Catholic Church. It's the exact same approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just make him go away. And then, you know, you sort of wonder, like, well, what about all of these girls? Right? These are teenagers. I was at a unit where we were training the youngest Marines in the Marine Corps. They had just come out of boot camp. And I thought, well, what, you know, what do you do with them? I mean, because literally no one briefed them. It's like they complained about this awful man. And suddenly he was gone. And... I mean, it just, it blew my mind. And I was sitting in an office with that Lieutenant Colonel as he was on the phone with a mother of one of these women trying to calm her down because she was threatening to go to the media, quite rightly. I wish she had. And he was basically telling her, you know, no big deal. We've got it handled. Don't worry about it. So, yeah. Incredibly, it's incredibly discouraging. The, the officer, the officer who tried to actually bring that case forward, was also transferred out of the unit. You know, just I was a young officer then. I thought, what am I witnessing? You know, you sort of like quickly assess your options as somebody with absolutely no power. What are you supposed to do in that situation? I guess I wrote a book about it. <laughs> well, and first you started Swan. You know, yeah, yes. Yeah. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. But let's talk about that transition, right? Like, out of the heart of darkness. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It was a lot. It was a messy transition. It wasn't like, this is terrible. I am leaving and going to become a crusader, right? Like, you struggled. It impacted your relationships. You struggled with your own violent impulses. Like, can you talk about how you got out? Yeah. I mean, for me, there was a real loss of confidence in basic values. Like, I just didn't understand a, why people would just look at the military and assume everybody was fine. I lost faith in people. I just lost faith in people because I saw otherwise decent human beings do the wrong thing. And I didn't understand why they were making these awful choices at allowing people to be hurt. How could human beings in positions of authority be so complicit in harming younger people? It drove me mad, literally. And uh, you know, when I when I would sort of like flip on the television set and see troops deployed wherever we were at that time, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, I just I was so depressed and so enraged that the American public was getting this very black and white version of military service when the truth was so much more nuanced and oftentimes ugly. This wasn't a case of like one bad apple. I'd seen an entire institution fail, fail young Marines again and again and again. And so, you know, that loss of faith, it hurt me directly. And part of the reason I was so hurt was because I also loved the Marines. I loved working with Marines. I loved my own Marines. You know, I felt like the, I'm in my last unit. I wasn't able to protect the young women that were working with me, even though I was in charge of their lives, their safety, their welfare. You know, there's a lieutenant sexually harassing them. I absolutely tried to get him held accountable. And again, the senior officers closed rank, protected him, promoted him. Um, He stayed in for years and years until he was finally kicked out of the Marine Corps. So justice found him in the end, but not while I was in. And it it really, really hurt. And so, yeah, I was depressed. I was anxious, had post-traumatic stress, and was trying to flesh out like, why, like, who am I? Am I, was I in the military? Am, Am I a veteran? What is this thing, veteran? I wanted to serve for many more years. You know, I thought about being a career officer and I realized what no matter no matter what unit I went to, there was always a man in uniform doing the wrong thing. 
and he had more power than I did. What did you love about it? I loved the camaraderie. I loved how real people were. And this was mostly on the enlisted side. For those folks who don't know how the, the class structure or the rank structure works in the military, it's a very classist system. So there are a tiny handful of officers who issue orders and then a mass of service members who are enlisted who execute the orders. And so if you have access to a college degree, you can be an officer. If you don't, you are enlisted. And uh, which, which, again, for me, is just a shocking thing. <laughs> that's like, that's all that that's all that counts. But I was obviously humbled on a daily basis working with Marines, just seeing how talented people were, their ability to inspire one another, working against the odds, against lack of sleep and all of that. It's very true about the Marines. And I was so excited just getting out of bed every day and going to work and seeing, seeing what my Marines could do because they were they also kept me laughing my head off. They're great people, a lot of them. So it was really also a grief that you were losing all that stuff you love, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was like losing family. And I mean, I held so much shame and regret inside of me. Regret for leaving, shame for not being able to protect people. And, you know, 15 years later, as this book is coming out, I got in touch with some of those Marines whom I couldn't protect, whom I couldn't save from these awful predators. And it was really quite moving for me getting in touch with them again and realizing actually they didn't hate me. I just hated myself. <laughs> like they, so they were very grateful to me. They thought really fondly of me. They were so happy that I was their officer. Apparently very few officers would have done that. And so I did feel like I sacrificed my career to try and do the right thing by many of my Marines. And it didn't work because the institution wasn't ready <laughs> for that kind of thing. But I don't think I'd do it differently. That's for sure. doesn't mean it hurts any less, but it was, it was beautiful being in touch with them and realizing, you know, and they're in the book. There are, uh, there are three in particular that I'm thinking of who. Are they still in the service? No, the two of them got out with me. Uh, they were women who were being harassed by a lieutenant. They were just two of the most amazing Marines that I'd worked with. And then the other was an infantry Marine who was my senior enlisted advisor. And he and I made a, a great team leading our company. You know, he told me this thing, which just blew my mind. And I put it in the book. He said when we had this lieutenant, this sexually harassing lieutenant, basically wreaking havoc in our company, and he knew that I, as a senior officer, as the captain, couldn't actually do anything to fix the situation because I was a woman. Like, it was just as simple as that. Even if I had been a man, I think the senior officers in the company would have closed ranks and protected this predator. But he, as somebody who'd been in for well over 30 years, he used to shadow this predatory lieutenant as he went about his day because he knew it was the only way to ensure that he wasn't wreaking havoc and harassing the women in our company. And when he told me this, again, this is 15 years after the fact, like we're both out now and I've been out for a while. It just floored me. First of all, I was, I was sort of touched, right? Like there's something right, like- It's, it's moving, right? Like yeah. that he would go yeah. to that extent, but also yeah. that that is what his option was. That was it. That was the solution, you know, sort of the only way he could protect the Marines. And it made me so sick hearing that. Yeah. It wasn't just sexual violence that the Marine Corps was dysfunctional about. It was dysfunctional about women's sexuality in general. I mean, there's a story you tell in Thailand that... Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you want to get into it, but 
Yes, yeah, so, so many stories in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Which one? About you going out and having sex and having that get thrown in your face. I was such a like arrogant little punk back then too because I was playing with fire and I didn't give a shit because one of the things that's not discussed much at all outside of military circles, I mean, it's very much like a sort of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas culture. But, you know, elected officials will not touch this issue of U.S. military bases around the world being sites of incredible, inappropriate behavior with local women and girls. And while U.S. regulations prohibit service members from engaging in what would be called prostitution, it's widespread, obviously, and there's so much exploitation of women and girls in East Asia and around the world. Wherever there's a U.S. military base, you, you better believe that something bad is happening to the local women and girls. And, you know, I'm an outspoken advocate when it comes to treatment of local people. You know, I spent a couple of years in Okinawa and because I don't look like the average Marine, I could sort of pass and as just a foreigner who's visiting and I ended up talking to a lot of women and what I saw in Thailand was probably one of the most abominable things I could have ever imagined because it's on a scale that would just boggle the mind. There are literally thousands upon thousands of service members engaging in sex with young Thai women and girls. And again, you know, by girls, I don't know how old they were. I tell a story about an army colonel who hung himself when he realized the girl he slept with was probably like a teen or preteen. And I don't know why he was surprised. I mean, it's a sort well, of trap thing. That... You can't tell me that he didn't on some level know that when he slept with her. Absolutely. On some level, I think we all know what's happening there. And so I didn't give a shit. You know, I ended up sleeping with a woman out in town. And at that point, I'd seen most of the men in my battalion cheat on their wives. And there was just so much seedy behavior going on left and right around me. And so I was playing with fire because I could have gotten kicked out for anything that was considered what the military would call homosexual conduct back then. And I sort of handled it by throwing it back in my senior officer's face by threatening to out everybody who had committed adultery on the deployment. And he shut up really fast because he knew that meant mostly everyone. Yeah. So I feel like I should have spent budgeted my time differently because we haven't talked at all about your work with Swan and I really super appreciate how frank you are about the challenges of doing social change work, especially social change work that involves actual U.S. politics. But I guess people are going to have to read the book to talk about that stuff because I have a couple of last questions. But let me tell you, if I may just tease it. Anurada does not pull punches and is not like a happy joy joy story about how everybody came together to like make change. <laughs> yeah. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say, yeah. Movements do not happen with lots of hugs, I guess. I, I mean, it was grueling work. I remember talking to you, Jacqueline, like a couple of years ago about how does one even write this? I felt like it was very important that people who are interested in social justice and making change, I mean, God, especially in this day and age, know that it is messy, messy work and that there's so much infighting. There's so much trauma also that and it's, you know, it's no surprise that people who are invested in issues often are impacted by those issues. That's why they're interested in them. Right. And that needs to be sort of something you wake up with and reckon with 
and handle appropriately every day you do the work because it's not going anywhere. You know, like my trauma didn't go anywhere as I was also working on <laughs> uh, reducing the trauma in the population. And at some point, you know, it sort of reared its ugly head and, you know, became too much for me. And women aren't intrinsically better at wielding power. That's true, too. I mean, yeah. I feel like one of the things that I took from that part of the book is and, and I just so appreciated reading a frank description about what it is actually trying to make social change, right? As opposed to like yeah. the kumbaya stories we tend to get. It's real talk up in there. And the power dysfunctions are different in the sort of swan activism part of the book than they are in the Marine Corps. Yeah. But they're not less dysfunctional. They're maybe yeah. they're less physically violent and abusive. You know, when I think whenever you are dealing with powerful people and if you're going to try and affect change in Washington, that means you're dealing with powerful people. We need to be on our guard because regardless of what marginalized population you are either from or working with, you will be used. Now, how you'll be used is different each time, but there are some patterns and there are very few people I, I trust in Washington and any party. You just have to be careful. And, and it's just like my golden standard right now is be very careful about who you share your story with and who you give sort of permission to. That if you ever feel like your voice is being taken, just trust your instinct because it probably is. It will probably be taken from you. Knowing it, and choosing it and being like, well, this person is probably going to use me, but I'm going to make my peace with that because it's going to help me get to my end goal is different than sort of being completely caught up short and it feeling non-consensual. Yeah. And I think it often happens so fast in Washington that it's hard to even breathe and know it's happening sometimes. I even resist that characterization a little bit only because the folks who are often wielding the power are not from our communities. Like this new Congress is so exciting for so many of us because it, it looks browner. Like there are brown women from various ethnic and racial communities that have never existed in Congress before. And it is so exciting. But it's so new. Yeah. Many of the women in Congress who are working with us, you know, were not veterans, had never sort of worked on these issues before, didn't know sort of armed services issues. And it matters, right? So there's always going to be a distortion of the facts when they're speaking our stories. And so we have to be careful. Some of that is mobilizing to make sure that women from our communities have those microphones, are in office, are running agencies, and and have that kind of influence. And, you know, that's a long-term project, but some of it also is crafting our own stories and sharing them when we're ready on our terms. And those terms, again, they get taken from us. They get distorted very, very quickly. And particularly when we've been hurt by powerful people, sometimes, you know, I, this certainly is true for me. And I saw with a lot of our clients, there's this rush to share our voices and our stories with anyone who will listen, particularly if they have power, because then it means like maybe we have a shot at changing things for somebody else. And that rush to jump to the microphone or to share our intimate truths with other people, time and time again, I saw that we would get hurt. We would just get hurt, you know, and there's this very particular narrative of veterans being used by politicians. It's so easy in this country, right? Because we don't have national service. It's so easy to tokenize veterans. You see it at the State of the Union, regardless of who's in power. You know, there's always some veteran who's being sort of touted as, always, you know, always, always, always. And it's, it's, you know, really, it's painful to watch sometimes. So I have two questions left for you. 
One is, how do you think about power now? I think it's it's really evolving for me. <laughs> yeah, think. yeah. Yeah, I particularly as I see all of these women running for president, which is so exciting because, you know, it, it's not up to one woman to represent us all. It's so exciting <laughs> that it almost... It almost seems normal suddenly, like, oh, yeah, another woman got in the race. It almost seems like there are enough of them that we can think about them as individual people. Yeah. You know, you've got some women who've delved in some hyper-masculine institutions, you know, Kamala Harris and, you know, all of her prosecutor background, or, you know, Tulsi Gabbard is a veteran herself, or, you know, Jill Brand, who's definitely made a mark in armed services on the Hill. It's very exciting And yet, you know, again, I sort of take a step back because I know that there's so much going on behind closed doors to make each candidate palatable to the broader American mainstream and that that journey started several years ago for each candidate. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always a little bit cautious about power. But not just not just literal electoral political power, but like how what's your relationship to power? For me, there's a very intimate healing process that's still happening. Power for me feels very different today than it did 15, 20 years ago when it was connected so much to force and physicality. And now true power for me is based on strength and strength looks different for me. Strength used to be about size, about physical size and mass and how much you could assert yourself with your voice. And now strength and power can be very quiet and can have a different pace. And so a lot of this is about, you know, the, the work I've done to heal from military service in, you know, not just yoga studios and meditation centers, but through writing, through friendship, through slowing down. And in fact, you know, some of my, my activist friends and colleagues, I think are a little stunned that I haven't jumped back into the fight I'm air quoting now. And I try to explain, I have no fight to jump back into. I don't want to fight. I don't know what affecting change looks like for me right now, except that if I'm not strong on the inside, and again, strength for me does not look like madly railing against whatever injustice I see, because I've done that and I did not last as long as maybe I would have liked to. Although you did accomplish real things. Yeah, I mean... A lot of good stuff happened. And, you know, and there's a cost to it, too. Yeah. And we don't always see the human cost to activists. We don't, and we don't talk about it amongst ourselves. We don't share those stories. We don't share the messiness yeah. as much as we ought to. And I think there's a way to sustain ourselves. And a lot of that comes from sharing these stories and building the human connection around how healing happens and also taking time to slow down. And so my last question is, I know that writing this book was incredibly vulnerable and sometimes very difficult labor for you. How are you feeling now on the eve of it becoming very public? I feel really good. I feel like, I feel like there's an opportunity with the political climate we're in right now with people so hungry for stories by women and people who just have not had a platform before that I'm actually not scared in the way that I might have been five years ago to talk about some of the things that happened to me 
or to talk about the messiness of how change happens. I'm actually really looking forward to those conversations. I feel like the military, if it chooses to have that conversation with me or people like me, it would be a huge opportunity. So I'm excited. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and also for writing this book, which is called Unbecoming, A Memoir of Disobedience. Everybody should go get it. If you're listening to this podcast, it is available at bookstores wherever you are. Where can people find you? Are you going to be on tour? Where can people find out about live events? Where can they follow you? You're not that much on social media, but like, how can people stay connected with your work? Sure. Yeah, I update all of my events on my website, honoradabhagwati.com. Do you want to maybe spell that for folks? <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, that was helpful. Uh, yeah, so A-N-U-R-A-D-H-A-B-H-A-G-W-A-T-I.com. Brilliant. And so they can keep up with all of your fantastic travails there. And you can also find my website at JacquelineFriedman.com. That's J-A-C-L-Y-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jacqueline F, on Instagram at Jacqueline Fable. You can also follow Anurada on Instagram and, and watch her pull-up progression. <laughs> what's, your in, what's your Instagram? Same thing, Anurada Bhagwati. Twitter is Anu Bhagwati. So I'm out there, pull-ups and other stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. It definitely inspires me to get off my butt sometimes. <laughs> you can find Unscrewed wherever fine podcasts are available. And while you're listening, take time to go into the listener of your choice. And if they have the option, give us five stars and a little review. It helps other people find the show. And it also makes my heart grow two sizes. Unscrewed is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by the fantastic Natalia Rodriguez. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna, and was produced in collaboration with The Establishment, who also produced The Sound Cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.